0: This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. How's everybody doing this morning? Well, we're right today in the middle of a series that we've called The Center of It All. So we're right in the center of the center of it all. And um, I'm I'm super excited about this series. I feel like God's really kind of given us uh, a few really important messages to share with you. But I just wanted to, as we get started today, point out something that's pretty obvious. We're only a few weeks away from Easter. Easter is, in, in the course of a church calendar, maybe one of the greatest shots we get to make a big difference in our community. People are more apt to attend, more likely to visit around Easter. And so uh, what I wanted to do is just kind of go ahead and begin by coaching you guys on, on some invitations that we want to give. The first thing that we, we want to happen this year is we, we just want to light up social media with invitations this year. All right, so, so I'm just going to give you a hashtag. Uh, hashtag is um, Easter at Vortex. All right? And here's what I want you to say. This is the language I want you to use, is join me at church. Join me. I want you to use that kind of language. All right? Because people need invitations. I'm going to go through that in just a minute and show you how that can make a powerful difference in the life of someone else. All right? So we want to leverage social media, but we also want to be able to to hand people invitations. That's why during the next few weeks, you're going to get invitations in your worship guides, all right? Um, But I, I think sometimes many of us don't know who to invite. We want to invite somebody. But we don't, know, we don't know the people that are more apt to respond to an invitation. So let me just give you three people who we need to be conscientious, actually assertive in inviting them to church. I call them the three knots. The first person is the person who is not involved in a church. Or if you have a neighbor that is not involved, attending church, if you have a coworker that is not attending church, if you have a family member that is not attending church, we want to invite them to come to church with us. Do you realize that in studies, 97% of the people who don't actively attend church said they would just come to, they'd love to come to church, but nobody has invited them. Nobody has invited them to come to church. That's a pretty high percentage of people who are willing to come to church if we just get out there and invite them to come with us. The second type of person is the people who are not in a good place, right? People who are not in a good place, people who are, are struggling in life right now. They're going through a tough time, and they've talked to you about it. They're maybe family, maybe maybe your neighbors, and you know that something's happened in their life. They're not going, um, things aren't going real well with them. They've hit a, a rough patch in life. And the third type of person that we want to be actively inviting to church is people who are not prepared for the next season of life. They are not prepared for the next season. These are people who are um, new, uh, expecting moms and dads. First time they're going to have a baby. Not prepared for the next season. People who have recently lost somebody that they love and they were not prepared to walk into this season of life. People who have hit some pretty significant things that they weren't prepared for. Like those are the people that we want to target with our invitations. How many of y'all know that in life, it's quite easy to just not be prepared for the things that we're going to encounter? How many of y'all know that? That's true. As a matter of fact, I heard a story this week uh, about somebody who said they were not prepared for this moment. It comes out of Apex, North Carolina. Apex is a a town of only about 40,000 people. It's about twice the size of Albemarle. It's a little suburb right outside of Raleigh. and Apex, in the entire history of the town, there have only been two homicides. I mean, the, the police chief says at night they roll up the sidewalks because nobody even comes out of their homes. It's a small residential community where people are very peaceful and normally very cordial. But in December of this last year, 2014, 911 received a call. The caller identified himself, gave his address, and then confessed to killing his wife and having two hostages inside the house with him. He gave demands and listed, at every 30 minutes I will kill someone if these demands are not read. So the small town of Apex began to assemble their SWAT team. That's right, even small towns like Albemarle have SWAT teams. They descended on this small house that was in the back of a residential neighborhood in the back of a cul-de-sac. They could see with IR that there was a man upstairs with two small kids. And they Notice that the man saw them as they were ascending on the house, that he left those kids, went and got something that they assumed was a gun and was headed downstairs, and so they breached the door only to find something that they weren't expecting. The woman, the wife, was on the couch in her pajamas watching TV, completely unaware of what was going on. The man was coming down the stairs, carrying his shotgun. See, he had just been tucking his two kids in upstairs. The police chief says, it was only a few moments later that I realized we'd been swatted. You may not know what swatting is. I didn't know what it was when I heard him tell the story. See, swatting is a national phenomenon where people will learn someone else's identity. Everyone that's in the home names, addresses, phone numbers, and they'll cloak a phone number, call 911, and create a scenario that would necessitate a SWAT response. It's actually quite popular in online gaming forums. There's a, a whole website dedicated to streaming live guys while they play video games, right? On the screen, you can see them playing the video games and you can see a live camera feed of them. And what's happened now is that these, um, we call them swatters, will, will try to swat these guys live on camera. There's a guy that was just arrested in New Jersey that was a part of a ring of swatters. They're estimating he's going to get about 25 years in prison for 10 SWAT attempts. If you go on YouTube, you can YouTube it and watch these guys that are completely innocent get taken down right in front of a live camera. See, I think life for many of us looks a lot like that moment. We're looking for something that's not there. We're looking for something that's not there. And I'm going to tell you something. I want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we walk through this message today. That if you're looking for something that's not there, you will never find it. If you're looking to find life, significance, meaning, purpose in the wrong place, you will never find it there. See, we believe the only place we're going to find life and purpose and significance is when we allow Jesus to become the center of it all. And I think that too many of us have bought into a lie as to what life should be look like? I call it the myth of priorities. We've drafted life on a series of priorities because normal people will tell you, if we go out and approach the most normal person on the side of the road, yes, God is a priority in my life. He's important to me. But if we step back and look at your life, does it actually look like He's important? I mean, you say he's a priority, and probably in your heart and in your head, you actually mean that. But does your life look like that? Because for the normal person, it doesn't. See, there's a problem with priorities, I want to give you three things that that you can take in your notes. The first thing is that priorities can lead to a compartmentalized view of life. This is where we separate our lives into different segments. I have my relationship with God. I have my relationship with my family. And then I have the way that I behave and act at work. And I act like a saint on Sunday morning, but I live like a sinner when I go to work. See, that is not a fully integrated way to live. There's a problem with that. And somebody might even feel comfortable saying, hey, you know what? God's a priority in my life. I go to church every week. I mean, I get up and have my devotion, but then I go to work and I cheat people out of money all day long. See, that doesn't jive together. And priorities can lead to a compartmentalized view of life. Number two, Intentions don't always translate into actions, and our actions matter an awful lot. You're going to see that in the text that we look at today. Our actions matter an awful lot, and intentions don't always translate into them. See, the problem with priorities is often when we talk about what our priorities are, they're what we want them to be, not what they are. Yet God matters. I, I love Jesus. I love him. And I know I need to get up and have a devotion. I mean, I know I need to be more faithful at church. I know I need to get plugged into a small group. I know I need to serve. But just haven't yet. I just haven't taken that step. I mean, I want to. I really want to. I think it's a good idea. But, you know, I mean, just, just haven't done it yet. Let me, this is... Uh, a principle that Andy Stanley developed in a book called The Principle of the Path. It's brilliant. I want you to understand this. That it's our actions, not our intentions, that determine our destination. And while the Bible does spend an awful lot of time talking about the heart behind what we do, today you're going to see that God absolutely looks at what we do. And your steps, the steps that you take in life will determine where you go. So it is the stuff that we do that matters. Not often the things, well, I I really, yeah. Because what you do speaks to what you believe and what matters. Not what your sentiment is. Not what your intentions are. What you practically do demonstrates what matters to you. And number three, It's impractical to say that you'll devote the largest or even the best portion of most days solely to God. That's right. I just said that and I'm a pastor, all right? It is. It's impractical to say that. Let's just say you're that great, devoted, faithful guy. You get up every day at five o'clock and you have your 30 minutes of devotional time every single day. Get up get your coffee, get ready, sit down with the Lord for 30 minutes, pray, read your Bible, spend 30 minutes getting ready. And at that moment when you walk out of the door, that's the only time in your day that you're even remotely close to the time that you have comprehensively devoted to the Lord being equal to what you've given to everything else. It's impractical to think that life should look that way. As a matter of fact, I think it's sinful. I think the Bible points us in an entirely different direction. So let's look at Thessalonians. What the Bible says in First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. The Bible says this, let us rejoice always, pray continually. Those of us who memorize scripture out of some older verses, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's not that you pray when you're at church or when you're in a devote. No, prayer doesn't stop. Rejoicing doesn't stop. Faithfulness to God doesn't stop. It spills over into everything. And that's important because we need to understand that what is important is supposed to be important in every single moment. Right? You tell me that your relationship with Jesus is important. Is it important when you're at work and you know that you can cheat someone out of $100? Is it important then? You tell me that your family's important? Your family matters? That you want to be a good dad? You want to be present with your kids? But your boss comes in at the end of the day and says, we've got some stuff that's got to get done. I need you to stay over. I know I didn't ask you to, but I need you to stay and work late. Really? What do you choose? Because what you do speaks to what's important. Your actions show it. See, just to use some common language to make this just just out there for you today, we need to realize that Jesus doesn't want to be an, an additive. Jesus wants to be the main ingredient that we cook our lives with. Right? He doesn't want to be sprinkled on top or added into the recipe. He wants to be the main ingredient. He wants to be the center of our lives. And I think that if we were ever going to sit down and ask God some, some real honest questions, I think probably the best question we could ask God is, God, I want you to be the center of my everything. I want you to be my life. What's that look like? I mean, tomorrow morning when I wake up and I've got to go to work and I'm going to be around people that don't love you and I'm going to work in an environment that's not friendly to my relationship. What what does it look like for me to put you at the center of everything? What What should my life look like? I think that's probably one of the most practical and healthy questions we could ever ask God. I mean, there's all kinds of questions that we want to ask him, like, why did this happen? And how did you actually part the Red Sea? And, you know, God, what happens? What's heaven going to look like? Are there streets of gold? And do we get to ride around on my little ponies? I mean, all kinds of questions that you probably want to ask God. But I think probably one of the healthiest, most helpful questions we can ask is, what should my life look like? And there's this moment in Scripture where somebody got to ask Jesus that. So today, we're going to spend the rest of our time examining that moment. It comes out of Matthew 9. This conversation is captured several times in the Gospels. We're going to use Matthews today. Beginning in verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to... eternal life. Now, understand that when the Bible says just then or but now or therefore, there was something that happened right before then. And in this passage, right before this moment, Jesus has been swamped with a bunch of little kids. And in his culture, kids were not perceived the way they are today. They were nuisances. They were to be banished. And the disciples set into doing that, getting them away from Jesus. And Jesus stopped them Said, no, I want to teach you an important lesson. You see these kids? You see what they value? Do you see what they care about? The kingdom of God is like them. This is what the kingdom of, you, you have all these ways that you've thought about what I want to do, but no, look at these kids. In them, you can see what the kingdom of God is like a little kid. And in the next moment, this young man approaches Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life. Jesus responds, what do you ask me about what is good? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. And if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. I'm going to tell you something. This is the first thing in your notes, and it's going to offend most of you. But I didn't say it. I'm just telling you that Jesus said it. It's this, that you are not a good person. You're not a good person. And far too many of us have believed that the gospel of Jesus exists to turn us into good people. And it's not that at all. That is a a false glimmer of hope that is not the gospel of Jesus. Jesus looked at this man and said, Good. No one's good. There's only one good it's God. So you think you're good? You're not, and we're about to find out that by our standards, this guy is pretty good. Then he says this, if you want to find life, keep the commandments. Let me rephrase that for you, just put it in our language. You want to find life, you want to experience what life should look like? Go be obedient. Stop writing your own story. Stop doing things your own way. Be obedient to my word. Be obedient to follow me. You want to find life? That's how you find life. Keep the commandments. That's number two in your notes. If you want to find life, real life, Jesus tells us the answer is in what we do. And we're about to see how this young man And many of us are connected. He asks a great question to follow up beginning in verse 18. Well, which ones? You say keep the commandments. Which ones, God? Which ones, Jesus? So Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to what he says here. All of these I have kept, the young man said. But what do I still lack? And one of the retellings of this story in Scripture, the Bible says that he said, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. Jesus doesn't say, you're lying to me right now. As a matter of fact, in the course of their conversation, he actually affirms what he's saying. We're dealing with a guy who's not lying, not stealing, who has honored his father and mother, who has treated his neighbors kindly. We're dealing with, in our culture, the guy that we would call a good guy. But how does he end that? What do I still lack? See, number three is our checklists always fall short of God's plan? Our checklists always fall short of God's plan. See, what Jesus did for him is he rattled off his checklist. All right, which commands? I'm going to go through the ones that you already know that you're doing. Don't lie, don't steal, honor your father and mother. He actually dissects out of the Ten Commandments and pulls out what, what we as theologians call the behavioral commandments, the things that the Ten Commandments tells us to do. He's done them all. His checklist has fallen short of what God wants from him. See, number four, priorities that don't become centers will leave us with the nagging suspicion that life is incomplete. See, the things that matter are supposed to translate and become the center of our lives. If we have a relationship with God and our relationship with God matters to us, it should become the center of our lives. But if we have a priority that does not translate into that, it will leave us with the nagging suspicion that there's more to life than what I've done. This young man who has been perfect blameless, spotless when it comes to the commands of God behaviorally knows there's something more that I'm missing. You see, Jesus went all like kung fu ninja on this guy and none of us have probably ever even noticed it because he didn't recite all the commandments back to him. He gave him his checklist, not God's he left out a really important one. It's the first one. The first commandment is, you'll have no God except me. So he didn't drop that one on him because that one is about to become an issue. Let's read on. Verse 21. So what do I lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. See, Jesus, in this moment takes what's going on in the heart of this young man and brings it to the surface. This guy has worked hard in life. He's been faithful and honest. And now his possessions have possessed him. The reason that he knows he lacks is because he broke the first commandment, the commandment that says you will have no other God because his stuff, his stuff became his God. And Jesus rewrites the script. You see, for a good Jew, they would understand that giving to God would involve a certain percentage. We now call it a tithe. There is a basis in Exodus to talk about a double tithe where we, as children of God, give 20% of our income when we're in desperate need of blessing. All right? but there is a percentage that's standard for most people. It's 10%. And see, Jesus sees that his possession, his estate, his wealth has captured his heart. And he says, if you really want this, you want this life, sell everything you have. I mean, for someone who understood the ways of God, he would know, like God has never asked this before, but he is in that moment. see, Number five, if we're following Jesus, you don't get upset or disappointed when he rewrites the script. Because sometimes God is going to have to change circumstances to get at things that are taking away from the life that he wants to give you. And number six, we need to accept things are not evil. The, the wealth that this young man has is not evil. But things make really bad centers in life. You see, the relationship that you have with your kids, with your spouse, with with your friends, all of those things are not bad. They're great, wonderful gifts from God, right? But they make really bad centers in life. The wealth that God has blessed you with, right? Awesome, a great opportunity for you to do something good in life. But it makes a really bad center in your life. The things that we have, cars, homes, possessions, those things, great, wonderful gifts, but they make bad centers in life. And this young man had allowed the things in his life to become his center. Think about it. He's a good guy. He's not a liar. He's not a cheater. He's marked off the checklist of the things that we should do that are good, but he still lacks something. And he walks away from Jesus with his head hung low, not experiencing the love and grace of God. While there are many who were sinners, wretched thieves, who experienced the grace of God and responded to him, who experienced the love and grace and mercy of God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will get to the Father except through me. If you're wondering what the way is, what should life look like, Jesus said, just come and follow me. I'm the way. I'm the way. Whatever direction I lead you, I'm the way. If you're wondering, Jesus, what is the truth? There's so many things out here. Whatever God says is the truth. And if any other voice is saying anything outside of what God has said, it's a lie. Because Jesus is the truth. And if you're wondering, what direction should I go? Jesus is the way. You see... There's this moment on all of those videos where these video game guys have been swatted. There's this moment once the police come crashing in and they take the guy down and they cuff him and they stand him back up. There's always this moment of about 20 seconds where it's completely silent. Where they see the cameras, they see themselves being streamed live over the internet in front of thousands of people. They see the comments that are streaming. There's this moment where they're completely embarrassed because they've been tricked by somebody into thinking that they could find something there that they couldn't find because it wasn't there. I'm praying that this is that moment for you that right now you see that the places you've been looking for life that are outside of Jesus are places you will never find life. And that God will remind you that if you want to experience real, fulfilling life, the only way you can do that is by following Him. i want to take you back to Hebrews 12 as we end today. It's the verse that's on our bracelets this year, Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. So let us run with determination the race that lies before us. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from beginning to end. And if we're living with that question, what should life look like tomorrow when I wake up from the beginning to the end of every day, from the beginning to the end of our lives? It's to fix our eyes on Jesus and let Him be the center of it all. Let's pray. God, today, God, we love you. We thank you that by your mercy, you have leveraged for us an opportunity to experience life that we could never earn, a life that's fulfilling, a life that has meaning and purpose. So God, today, as we bow our heads. I pray that in this room with so many people, there's some of us that have been like those officers looking for life in a place that we could never find it. And I pray that right now in this moment we would sense that if we keep looking there, we're never going to experience the life you want for us. So today, God, Let us fix our eyes on you. Let us run with perseverance the race that you have marked out for us. Let us, God, let you be the, the strength that we need from the beginning to the end. God, let you be the center of our lives. So with nobody looking around, every head bowed, let me ask you an important question for you to deal with right now. Is Jesus the center of your life? Is he the center of your life? And there's some easy ways for you to know that. Is he the greatest source of strength you have? Is he the greatest source of joy and fulfillment that you experience? Or is something else taking that away? Maybe today you're like that young man that Jesus talked to you have the nagging suspicion that life is more than what you're living right now. And maybe this is the moment you wake up and let him become your life. If that's you and you say right now, I want Jesus to be my life, raise your hand. I want him at the center of my life. Who else in here? Awesome. Now I wanna wanna ask some people that have been following Jesus for a long time today. It's quite easy to get confused about what the center of our lives is, whether it's Jesus or a checklist. Theologically, the question is, whose righteousness are you living on? Yours or Jesus's? If you'd say, I've gotten confused and I've been trying to live it by doing it right and I haven't been living through the grace that God gives me, but today I wanna get that right, raise your hand if that's you. God, we just ask you to come. For those of us that need you to be the center of our lives, God, we just confess a great need for you today. God, we can't do it on our own. We can only do this with you. So, God, we're going to be vulnerable and admit that. We're going to accept you. God, receive Those of us in the room that say that, God, by your grace and mercy, transform our lives. In the name of Jesus.